0: We've been tracking a chiastic structure of the book of Leviticus. Chiastic meaning it's an outline in the shape of an X rather than how we typically do it, which uh, has a lot of sub points. But a chiastic structure, each point will parallel another point later. And in the center is usually the point of emphasis. And what happens after the center point is usually changing what happened before that. So tonight we are in chapters 21 and 22, which are parallel to chapters 8, 9, and 10, which is all about the ordination of the priests. First it had the ceremony, then it had the story of how Nadab and Abihu were struck down. Well, we are back talking about the priesthood and uh, about special rituals and special cleanness related to the priesthood. So this is going to outline very specific rules for Aaron and his sons. And we'll see that Some of these things almost seem restrictive as you talk about them. And you think to yourself, I don't know if I'd even want to be one of these priests. Uh, But it's important to know God has always had a higher standard for his ordained ministers, even above his people. Not radically different Not as in, this is so much higher than everybody else, but it's an intensification of what is already required. And in the New Testament, what we'll see is that the Lord requires the ideal of his pastors and elders. And uh, this has been true throughout the book. And it's unfortunate that very often pastors and leaders in the church are given more permission and more leeway to act out. the average believer, which is the exact opposite of how it should be. And we're tonight going to focus especially on the concept of being without blemish. And we're going to read this because we saw it related to the sacrifices, that it must be a sacrifice without blemish, but God is also going to apply this to the priests who will approach him in the holy place. And this kind of strikes us as, as odd and not very kind, but it's important for us to take the time to learn the lesson that God is trying to teach here uh, because, as I've said before, just briefly and in passing, uh, we're living in a day and an age where there is an obsession with the exception, with the marginal, whatever is on the fringe or on the edge. That's what we're excited about. Um, but God really, in the in the Old Testament law, does the opposite of that. And it teaches us something that uh, speaks to our our own modern sensibilities and I think gives us a Maybe not a rebuke, but at least something to think about and how God presents it. So let's read the first 15 verses of chapter 21. And the Lord said to Moses, speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say to them, no one shall make himself unclean for the dead among his people except for his closest relatives, his mother, his father, his son, his daughter, his brother, or his virgin sister, who is near to him because she has had no husband, for her he may make himself unclean. He shall not make himself unclean as a husband among his people, and so profane himself. They shall not make bald patches on their heads, nor shave off the edges of their beards, nor make any cuts on their body. They shall be holy to their God and not profane the name of their God, for they offer the Lord's food offerings, the bread of their God. Therefore, they shall be holy. They shall not marry a prostitute or a woman who has been defiled. Neither shall they marry a woman divorced from her husband, for the priest is holy to his God. You shall sanctify him, for he offers the bread of your God. He shall be holy to you, for I, the Lord who sanctify you, am holy." And the daughter of any priest, if she profanes herself by whoring, profanes her father, she shall be burned with fire. The priest who is chief among his brothers, so that would be the high priest, on whose head the anointing oil is poured and who has been consecrated to wear the garments, shall not let the hair of his head hang loose nor tear his clothes. He shall not go into any dead bodies nor make himself unclean, even for his father or for his mother He shall not go out of the sanctuary, lest he profane the sanctuary of his God. For the consecration of the anointing oil of his God is on him. I am the Lord. And he shall take a wife in her virginity, a widow, a divorced woman, or a woman who has been defiled, or a prostitute. These he shall not marry. But he shall take as his wife a virgin of his own people, that he may not profane his offspring among his people. For I am the Lord who sanctifies him." As we've said many times, maybe not the verses you would spend your morning quiet time meditating upon, but there it is. These are specific rules related to mourning and marriage for the priests and then especially for the high priest. And we'll just run through these, explaining them a little more plainly. Concerning mourning, it says a priest was not to become unclean for the dead. What does that mean? Well, at a funeral, you're going to be near the corpse. They had rituals where they would wash and embalm the body. They picked that up in Egypt. They did it with Joseph. They did it uh, with Jesus. They were going to do it with Jesus. And it would, of course, make you unclean. It wasn't a sin, but it would make you unclean for approaching a dead body. Well, the priests were not to ever do that. They were not to become unclean for the dead. There were exceptions, and it was for their immediate family, for their parents, for their children, for their brothers, and for their... Young sisters, that is young unmarried virgin sisters. Of course, when a woman is married, she becomes part of the family to which she goes. But if she was unmarried and she was under the protection and within the household of the priest, then that would be allowed. And verse 4 prohibits this. It says, as a husband. What it means there is, we would say the term in-law. That you weren't to do this for your in-laws, but only for those who you were married to. Uh, who you were related to by blood. Now it does not specifically say this, but it 's important to note: wives were allowed. Wives, you were allowed to make yourself unclean for your wife. And the reason we know this is because of Ezekiel 24:16, Ezekiel was not just a prophet, he was a priest, and in Ezekiel 24:16, he is specifically forbidden by the Lord to mourn for his wife when she dies. And it's to be a symbol because when Judah is, is sent into exile, God says, I'm not sorry and I'm not going to mourn for you. And it says, so you as the prophet and the priest, your wife is going to die and you are not to mourn for her. So this prohibition would have been entirely unnecessary if priests already did not mourn for their wives. Hopefully you can see that. They also are prohibited from disfiguring themselves in their mourning. Now, typically, uh, what would happen is you would let your hair hang loose. We've read about this. You would tear your garments, sackcloth, and ashes. But things they were not supposed to do, it says to make bald patches on their heads, verse 5, shave off the edges of their beards, or make any cuts on their body. Now, these are all... Outward disfiguring, by, by shaving the edges of the beard. I mean, you've seen somebody who has a nice, big, luxurious beard, right? Well, imagine taking your, your scissors or whatever and just chopping it up so that it looks all disheveled and, and ripped apart. This is what they would do for mourning. They would shave bald patches into their heads or, in some cases, cut themselves. Now, the Israelites were already not to do this. We read this last time. But he's emphasizing it again for the priest, as in, especially not you guys. Now, the high priest was not even to publicly mourn or become unclean for anybody. When he says the priest who is chief among his brothers. And he says, why? Because he's been anointed with the holy anointing oil. He wears the priestly robes with the the gems on it, the ephod. He was to go into the holy of holies. And he is to be above all such things. That's the role of the high priest. He wasn't to let his hair hang down loose, which tells us, again, culturally, the men must have worn their hair longer than we typically do, if that would have been a possibility for them. But also, he was not to tear his clothes. Now, you might remember in Matthew 26, 65, when Jesus tells Caiaphas, the high priest, I am the son of God, and you will see me riding on the clouds of heaven. Caiaphas tore his robes. Now, we read that, and we kind of pass by it. But when you know this verse here, the high priest was never to tear his robes, not even at something like that. So you get a picture of who Caiaphas was, that he would bend the rules and bend the laws to serve his own purposes. And he had bought his way into the priesthood anyway, but uh, that's that's history. That's not from scripture. But the high priest was not to do that thing. And in verse 6, he kind of explains why they are not to mourn and also why they're not to marry just anybody. He says, because they handle God's holy food. That is my offerings that come in. And he says, if you're going to do that job, you have to be separate and different from other people. And the second rule, from, first was mourning, and the second now is marriage. And they're given a list. A priest was not to marry a prostitute, a divorcee, Or a rape victim. That's what it means by a woman who's been defiled. And I hope you can see these things. This is not, uh, in every case, casting judgment upon the woman. The idea is this is to be somebody who is a virgin. Somebody who has not been with somebody else. Now, the priests were allowed to marry widows. But the high priest was not even allowed to marry a widow. He was to marry a Hebrew virgin. So you can kind of throw foreigners. We're also not allowed in there. And we say, why is that? Well, the reason was the, the bloodline of Aaron was to be preserved. It was always supposed to be the sons of Aaron that served in the tabernacle. And so for most priests, this was to be By by putting it this way, not a prostitute, someone who's been raped, or somebody who has been divorced. The idea is there is no possibility that that child that has been born is anything other than a direct son of Aaron. So that way there is never somebody who is not descended from Aaron serving in my tabernacle. Now, widows were appropriate. I guess there could have been a time of, uh, of appropriate waiting for that. But high priests were specifically to be extra careful, you might say. And then he has another rule here thrown in because it's, it's probably the best place to have put it, uh, that if the daughter of a priest was ever to become a prostitute, she was to be burned for profaning her father. That is profaning God's representative because she carried the blood and of course we'd say the genetics, you might say, of her father. Now, Leviticus 19.29 makes it clear that prostitution was already prohibited among the children of Israel. It did not give a specific punishment. And that was because, of course, the judges in Israel would be given some leeway in order to decide why. If a woman, let's just say, had been cast into deep poverty or if she'd been kicked out by her family or any number of reasons, perhaps the judge could have shown leniency to her. But when it's related to the priest, there's a higher standard for him and for the family. So she was to be burned. I would assume that the people that had been with her would have been uh, punished as well because of what the rest of Scripture tells us. And in verse 15, there's that other second refrain. We're going to see this, those who handle my food and those whom I sanctify are going to be repeated through these two chapters quite a bit. They were holy. God had set them apart. They were to be serving in His holy place, which again, I've said it a million times, that's the whole point of Leviticus. God is here in this house, How are we supposed to handle that? Well, God set apart certain people to come into his house, and this came at a personal cost. Now, first of all, all of us are held to a higher standard than other people as Christians, but our pastors and elders, even more so, are to be held to higher standards. Titus 1, verse 6, the opening line explaining the requirements for an elder, it says, if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife... And his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. So you can see that it's not just the pastor, it's not just the elder, but it's also his wife and his children who are to be considered when you're putting somebody in authority in the church. I grew up in a pastor's family. And I am a pastor now. It can be difficult for the pastor and his family, especially for the kids, especially if the church makes it miserable for the children. I've known way more pastor's kids that resent God and resent the ministry, not because of their parents. They love their parents, but they just cannot abide the way that their dad or their mom was treated by the people in that church. And they also can resent their dad because dad didn't step in and put a stop to it when he should have. So we, we, I'm not accusing anybody. We have a great fellowship here and we feel very well loved by all of you, but it's a lonely thing. It's lonely to lead in general, but it's especially lonely to lead in God's church. So the pastor is held to a higher standard. However, the high standards of morality and family to which our leaders are held should be standards that we all strive for. And we are not in the church today concerned with being struck down like Nadab and Abihu were, as much as we are concerned for the gospel and the reputation of Jesus Christ and uh, the ability to do the work that God has called us to do. Let's move on to verse 16 uh, to the end of the chapter here. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying... Speak to Aaron saying, none of your offspring throughout their generations who has a blemish may approach to offer the bread of his God. There it is again, offering the bread. For no one who has a blemish shall draw near a man blind or lame or one who has a mutilated face or a limb too long or a man who has an injured foot or an injured hand or a hunchback or a dwarf or a man with a defect in his sight or an itching disease or scabs or crushed testicles. No man of the offspring of Aaron the priest who has a blemish shall come near to offer the Lord's food offerings. Since he has a blemish, he shall not come near to offer the bread of his God. He may eat the bread of his God, both of the most holy and of the holy things but he shall not go through the veil or approach the altar because he has a blemish that he may not profane my sanctuaries for I am the Lord who sanctifies them so Moses spoke to Aaron and to his sons and to all the people of Israel God prohibits priests who had blemishes we might say things like disabilities or deformities from serving in the tabernacle and he lists 12 of them here number 1 if you were blind Number two, if you were lame. If you were disfigured in the face, and that word uh, can be translated who has a split nose. So I don't know if this was cleft palate or any manner of facial disformity. People who are disproportioned, where the limbs were too long or too short. Number five, people who were crippled in their feet. Number six, people who are crippled in their hand. Think of the man in the synagogue who had a withered hand that Jesus healed. Anyone who was a hunchback, anyone who is a dwarf, who has a damaged eye, I assume this would probably not refer to something like natural uh, cataracts that come upon an old man, although it could be that this was one of the ways that the Lord passed on the high priesthood, is that as a man grew older and some of these things developed, it was time to move them on. Number 10, any kind of skin disease. Number 11, any kind of open sore that would not heal. And number 12 is if anybody who was a eunuch, anybody who had been cut or disfigured or had an accident uh, for a man's testicles could not approach the Lord in his tabernacle. Now, such a man was permitted to eat of the bread. That is, you're not kicked out of the priesthood. You're still able to make your living from serving. Uh, It does not say, but perhaps they could still serve in the courtyard of the tabernacle, killing the sacrifices, getting rid of the ashes. We don't know, but they were not allowed to enter the holy place. Because he says, the Lord says, these places have been sanctified by me and that they would be profaned by blemish or by defect in God's holy place. So only somebody who is the perfect picture of health, who had a normal body, we might say, would be allowed to enter. Now, we don't like mandates like that. We're going to camp out here for a little while. We don't like these because they feel unfair. We say, well, they didn't do anything wrong. Once again, I say... Time out. God is not saying they did anything wrong. He's saying you are not to come into my tabernacle in this state. Most people were not to come into the tabernacle. Only the priests were allowed to come in. We've talked at length about the difference between being unclean and being in sin. This is a similar idea here, what we're talking about. But we say, well, why would God do that? Why would God say that only somebody who is the picture of health is able to come into my tabernacle? Well, we're gonna spend some time at length to explain this. God cannot allow sin into his holy place. We know that, but we need to go beyond that. God also, in this picture, cannot allow the effects of sin into his holy place. The abnormal, which of course was not God's design, not the way he created the world, was not to be brought into his holy place. It would defile it. Because you have there in this place that is so full of symbol and so full of of the the presence of God and is actually a picture of the separation between man and God. In order to maintain that picture, he's saying anybody whose body has felt the ravages of sin, they're not outside my love, they're not outside my grace, but they may not approach me because nobody, this is a, a centuries long picture God is painting for all of us. Anybody who is not perfect may not approach me. If you've fallen short of the glory of God, you cannot come. We saw a similar idea when we were discussing the clean and the unclean animals in chapter 11. You remember this? How God kind of had the, the standard animal, so to speak, which was, you know, four legs with cloven hooves and that chewed the cud. That's, that's a standard food animal. Anything that had uncloven hooves or anything that ate something that was dead or any uh, fish that did not have scales and fins or any bird that uh, ate dead creatures was not to be eaten. And we saw how God is, is painting a picture here of wholeness. Not holiness, but wholeness. And this is similar to what he's getting at here. There's absolutely a moral dimension to holiness. We've talked about that. And that's how the New Testament mostly picks it up. But what you need to understand there is more than just morality related to holiness Something that was holy in the Old Testament was not necessarily morally holy. It was separate. It was distinct. And it was supposed to be separated with a positive connotation. So somebody who is separated from the rest of humanity is somebody that is holy. That's why the priests were not to engage in the same normal, non-sinful practices because they were holy. In the same way, only those that were whole could approach the Lord in His holy place. As such, this is, this is a point that can be very much misunderstood. So I'm going to try to speak carefully, and I hope that you'll, you'll try to track with me here. The Bible very much celebrates what is normal, meaning the way that God made it and designed it, the Bible celebrates that. In Genesis chapter 1, when God made the world, Genesis 1.31, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very what? Good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. When God made the world, everything was good. God looked at it and said, that's all right. We're going to hang on to that. And he rested on the seventh day. The idea being there's nothing more that needs to be made. It's been completed. In the Garden of Eden, there was no sickness. There was no perversion. There was no death. These are things, sickness, perversion, and death, that came because of sin. Romans 5.14 tells us that death reigned in the world from Adam because of sin. And not just death, but sickness, as I said, moral perversion came into the world. We see that with, uh, with Cain right away. That came into the world because of sin. That was not the way God made it. This is why it's so hard sometimes to answer ethical questions when there's sin involved. Because this was not the way that God made it to be. This is why very often we have a hard time handling life. And why did this happen this way? Can't understand it. Because sin has wrecked what God made. Therefore, every deviation from the norm, meaning the way that God designed it, is a departure from the way God said is very good. It's profane. And I'm saying profane because it's not necessarily sinful. The category we're dealing with here is not necessarily moral. That's in there. But... Seeing somebody who is, to use one of his examples, who's born blind. That's not that baby's fault. And we're going to look at this in a second. But that is not the way that God made it. Sin has profaned God's creation. Our rebellion against God has borne fruit in the world. And to the point I was just making, the Bible makes abundantly clear, and especially Jesus, that not all of these things are our fault. There's not always moral culpability related to the profaning of God's holy design. Job makes this, I mean, he takes like 40 chapters to make this very strong point. Not every bad thing is somebody's fault. In John chapter 9, they saw the man who was born blind and they said, Lord, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus says, neither one. And it's, it's not always that something is at fault, that somebody is at fault. Sometimes things just happen. And there are some, I don't even know if I want to say well-meaning, but there are some Christian church-going folks that will make you feel like everything a bad thing that happened to you is because of something you did. That is not the way the Bible puts it. So I hope I've said that very clearly, that these categories I'm discussing, they can be sinful, but it's broader than just sin. It's a deviation from God's design. Physical disabilities. Might add to that Mental retardation a spouse who's been abandoned, starving families. You know, the crops fail. Dad lost his job. It wasn't their fault. They were hardworking people, but they're having trouble getting their feet back under them. Those things are part of living in a sinful world. It's just going to happen until Jesus comes and makes it all better. But now let's move on to the part that sometimes it is our fault. Matters of morality are also in this category of profane. The main example that Romans chapter 1 uses is that of sexual deviance, that when you Reject the knowledge of God. You begin to worship the creature rather than the creator. And when you suppress the knowledge of the truth, it says God gives people up. He gives you over to the debasement of your mind to defile your body. That you begin to think in ways that are unworthy of God's creation and treat your body in ways that are unworthy of God's design and creation. He specifically calls out homosexuality there, not the way that God designed it. It's profane. And this one does have a moral connotation. So we see this, number one, God created the world whole and good, it was defiled by sin, and now there are things that ravage the world, we might call them profanations of the world, some of which have a moral connotation and some of which don't. Now let's look at what happened when Jesus came. When Jesus came, he shared, it says, in the likeness of sinful flesh. Jesus himself did not sin, but he lived in a body as if it had sinned, meaning he was not walking around in a perfect glorified body like Adam and Eve would have been. But he also came to deliver us from sinful flesh. And that just shows you the incredible love and grace of Jesus Christ. Is I'm going to take on what they have taken on, even though I don't deserve it and I'm not going to bring it upon myself. I'm willing to accept it in order to help them. And when Jesus walked around teaching, he went around making what was unwhole, going around making it whole. When John the Baptist was thrown into prison, he sent some people to go talk to Jesus and he said, are you, are you the Messiah? I mean, I thought you were, and I've been kind of telling people you were, but I'm in prison <laughs> and it doesn't seem to be getting any better. Well, Jesus told him in Matthew eleven five. he said, go back and tell John the blind received their sight The lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. Jesus uses as an example of proof of who he was that I am going around making broken bodies whole. I'm reversing what evil has done. I'm reversing what sin has done. I'm opening up blind eyes. I'm unstopping deaf ears. I'm raising up the cripples. I'm preaching good news to the poor. I'm even raising the dead, the ultimate example of this thing. So Jesus, the the way he demonstrated who he was, was, John, I'm going around fixing everything. All these people that have been broken by sin, I'm fixing it. In his body, Jesus made bodies whole. And then, of course, ultimately, in his death, his sinless death, he brought an end to the power of sin and death. So he not only healed the immediate issue, But he dealt with the ultimate issue. He didn't just deal with the symptoms, he dealt with the cause, you understand. So, why do I draw that out? The idea of sin defined as corruption carries over into the New Testament. Making very clear, this isn't always somebody's fault. Now, there was certain times where Jesus healed a lame man and said, now go and sin no more. And the implication seems to be that he got himself into this mess. There's both of those things, but Jesus came to help them both. This is why, of course, those with physical and moral defects are both welcomed into God's family today. The veil has been torn. Those who are broken spiritually, those who are broken physically, are not excluded from God's presence any longer. And praise the Lord for that. But you know what? There is an ultimate transformation coming where God is going to deal with all of this. 1 Corinthians 15.50, one of the classic rapture passages It says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Why? Because flesh and blood, as we've said, are corrupted by sin. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Verse 53 of that chapter, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. So Jesus has welcomed everybody now, but that's all into the hope of someday we're all going to be dealt with not just the the sinful moral aspects of who we are, but even the physical body is going to be glorified. There's not going to be any blind people in heaven. There's not going to be any sick people in heaven, and we're never going to die in heaven because the root cause of all those things, which is the corruption of sin, will have been removed and will have been glorified. So I hope you've tracked me through this. God made the whole world good. Sin corrupted it. So now there are all sorts of things that make life miserable. Some of it is our fault. Some of it is not. So when Jesus came, in order to prove who he was, he went about fixing all all this stuff. And his death made it so that eventually we will all be welcomed and all be glorified. And the corruption, the profanation of sin will end when we get to heaven. So for that reason, Knowing the whole story that I just laid out for you, there's the theology. We come back to Leviticus and he says, my priests, when they come into my holy place, must be whole because they are holy. He's not saying you're more, you're you're better in God's eyes than somebody else if you have all your fingers. He's saying you are representing something to my people. And what you are representing is the wholeness of my design, which eventually I will Restore, because the the perishable cannot receive the imperishable. Kind of like we say, God accepts you just as you are, but he, He loves you too much to leave you just as you are. He wants to heal you, He wants to make you whole. This is the theme that runs throughout the Bible, and the Bible is very unmodern in the way that it goes about it. It just talks about the fact that, hey, somebody who is crippled, they're not exactly the way God designed us. That's not their fault but Jesus wants to heal them of that. Or Jesus comes along and he says, this is a clean animal, this is an unclean animal. Now later on God would divide those distinctions away from the church because the lesson had been well learned. But the idea that we're we're looking at here, this theme of being whole, is not one that we find a lot of sympathy with today. And here's where we're gonna kind of get some application. The Bible upholds the standard of creation, Whether that is the physical creation or whether that is the the institutions and the rules that God has set up. So your physical body and also God's commandments for your life. Your creation as beautiful and desirable. You read through the book of Song of Solomon. It, in fact, in a way that makes a lot of us blush, celebrates the beauty of a woman and the beauty of a man and in their union and their love together. It's God's design of a man and a woman coming together in marriage for the purpose which God has created them. The Bible celebrates that and in any number of different other applications. But today, we're living in a world that has forsaken the idea of any kind of standard. And we now have an obsession with the marginal with the abnormal and the deviant. This seems to be what we are more interested in today. And I'll give you what I, what I mean in an example, because again, this can be very well misunderstood, but I don't wanna be. Some of these things are moral, some of them are not, but it, it has dangerous implications if we let it go. Have you ever wondered why modern art is so ugly? You ever, you ever, like, there's two museums in Washington, D.C. There's the Modern Art Museum, and then there's the, just the regular plain old art museum. Now, that one has the presidential portraits in it, and it's got all kinds of amazing paintings and sculptures. And then you go to the Modern Art Museum. I didn't even make it inside, because outside, they have this, this little fenced-off green patch and a bunch of rocks. They're just rocks, nothing special. But then there's a little plaque right there. It has an artist's name, and it has, in quotation marks, Wandering Rocks. And that was one of, that's one of the exhibits. And you kind of look through it and they've, you know, they've got all these weird like, oh, this is just a green, uh, it's just a green canvas on the wall. And then there's one, I, I don't think it was in D.C., but it's a golden toilet and you're invited to use it. And the name of the exhibit is America and you're like, this is so this weird, and the paintings are intentionally ugly, like on purpose. Like they're, they're trying to make it look gross. One guy, I remember, I saw this in a book. He sold his bed. Like he just got out of bed in the morning, took a picture of it, and sold it as an art piece. And we go, that is so dumb. And you say that to somebody that pretends to like art, and they look down their nose at you, don't they? Where does that come from? That comes from the belief that there is no such thing as beauty that it's all relative, that it's all perspective. And the only thing that makes a piece of art worthy is the message that it's trying to communicate. So it doesn't matter if it's an ugly painting. If the painting was painted in order to point out the sufferings of the poor, it's a good painting. Have you ever wondered why certain movies that are just, they're just terrible. Like This is just, it's boring and it's not funny and it's kind of the CG doesn't work, but everybody's singing its praises. And you find out why? Because it's saying the right things. It's because it's it's kind of, whether you're not, you're an artist, it's kind of in the air. If it's making the right point, then it's to be celebrated and it doesn't matter if it's good or not. And standards of good are just being forced down from the top anyway. It's very kind of bizarre, isn't it? It's where you get weird, ugly art from. Now, the same idea that gave rise to that, and it's much easier to understand it in something very visual and visceral like that, but that same idea is borne out in our, our affirmation of dangerous excesses of all kinds. Excess of lifestyle, excess of sexuality, even in our, the way that we speak about those that are disabled. I mean, the Bible teaches us to love those that have physical disabilities, but there are many that will even talk about people that are not disabled as somehow inferior. You don't get it. You don't understand. You're, you have less of an understanding of the human experience as somebody who's in a wheelchair, for example. You'll hear things like this. People say things like, all right, if we're going to, you know, we're going to have a government council on on what to teach kids in their sex ed classes. We want to make sure that if we have 10 people, we've got at least two transgender and two lesbian and two gay and maybe some, but like, well, hold on a minute. One of those is 1% of the population. One of those is like 5% and then 95 is everybody else. And I say, well, because those on the margins and in the, the, uh, the abnormal, they have more to say than the, aver- than the average person. And that's why those things are held up. And this does not just apply to areas of morality. It really doesn't matter if your painting is ugly or not. But this entire idea of what is normal and what is standard and what is whole has been abandoned and castigated. And it leads to some very painful things that when we read statistics about fathers abandoning their families or divorces or, or anything like that, it's not to be grieved We're just coming up with a new way of looking at it. And lots of people have different families and they should be put on TV and they should be exalted and they should be able to explain their side of the story. And we say, but this is the way God made it. And we say, well, that's not the way it is for everybody. Marriage is nothing so special. It's kind of old fashioned anyway. You see this even now with things about the body positivity movement. Where it's like, we don't want to look at people that are traditionally handsome or beautiful any longer, because that's not fair to those of us that aren't handsome or beautiful. So we're going to hold up people that are deliberately not the standard. I don't know why you'd take that job if you knew that was what was being offered to you, but, you know, a paycheck's a paycheck, I guess. That we worship as a culture what's on the fringes and what's on the edges, to the point now where somebody who's in a majority position and this can apply to any, any number of domains, is, uh, should just be quiet and let, and let somebody else talk, which is interesting in a de- democratic society, which is what we're supposed to have. Now listen, perhaps we, conf- we emphasized conformity too much in the past. I don't know, I wasn't alive. But this is what everybody tells me. Everybody was suppressed, everybody was ignored, everybody was silenced, and it's finally high time that we let people speak up. Okay, okay. But it's this idea that's at the core of that that concerns me, that it doesn't matter if that's how God designed it. It doesn't matter if this is the ideal. You know, we say things like, I've heard people say, you shouldn't ever talk about marriage in the church because it makes single people feel bad. Like, they'll tell you, they'll straight up tell you, you shouldn't talk about marriage in the church because a single person might feel upset. Okay, well the Bible presents it as this is something that is good and is to be desired and it's one of the first things God did and marriage is still what most people do, but people say that that doesn't matter because people aren't getting married like they used to and so we don't want to talk about that. That's not good. As Christians, we are to honor what God has made and established and not, you know, we we there's a lesson to be learned about welcoming those that are on the outside or especially those that are things that are entirely out of their control, but we're not to fetishize the other. That's the opposite problem. Psalm 139:14 says, "I praise you, O Lord, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works; my soul knows it very well." When sin corrupts something, we don't praise the corruption. Just because the ideal has been broken and not everybody achieves it doesn't mean that we stop holding it up. All fall short of the glory of God, right? That's why some people say you shouldn't talk about sin. Because nobody can ever live up to the standard. And we go, well, that's kind of the point. Is that we need Jesus to step in and redeem and glorify us. There are people that say you shouldn't talk about healing in the church. Because then you're going to be telling somebody who's disabled that God doesn't love them the way they are. Say nothing of the fact that Jesus went around healing people. It's like one of the main things that he did. We're not denigrating. We're not hating what is different. But we are able to hold up what God has ordained, especially when it relates to these moral issues. We need to make a distinction between what is and is not in our control. But we, we ought to carry on this idea of wholeness. And that's what should be idealized. So, I mean, let's, I'll just give you seven examples of this here really quickly. I mean, let's first go back to that art example, beauty. I'm not talking about the beauty of a woman. I'm talking about the idea of what is good and desirable is generally understood. You know, there are people that will say and will teach in schools, there's no such thing as what is good. There's only opinions about what is good, right? Beauty is only in the eye of the beholder. Therefore, there's no such thing as good books or good music or good art. There's only what you like. Well, we know that the Lord has created things. We have, we have a sense of, of good and right within us. There is a sense of right and wrong that is tied to this idea that we should say, no, this, these things exist without feeling the need for shock value in order for something to be considered good. How about the human body? This is what this passage is teaching us, right? The human body is God's design. And we should recognize its ideal without mocking somebody that has some sort of defect or has a neurodivergence or something like that. But that said, there is something to be said for taking care of the temple, right? You ever hear that one growing up? When you're having too many donuts and your dad is like, hey man, that's God's temple, you're stuffing full of sugar right there. Maybe only my dad used to say that, I don't know. But we take care of our bodies. We, we teach our kids to take care of their bodies. We don't mock or tease or, or try to undercut somebody that has is maybe better looking than you are. That God has created beauty, he's created the body, and it's something to be... Not worshipped is the wrong word, but to be honored and respected and say, God made us this way. Number three is the family. Much more important, I think. God created the family as we understand it. There's a father and a mother, there's children, and the parents stay together. Now, do other makeups exist? Yes, they do, because life happens. But we don't alter our understanding of what God has said is best, because there are those that are unable to achieve that for whatever reason. I already mentioned sexuality, sexuality. We've talked about this at length many times. That when it is done right, a man and a woman together in the bonds of marriage forever, it's good and it's wonderful. And we don't need all of these protections that we try to bring up. We need to stop honoring false sexuality as just other options. Well, we want the kids to be able to consider all their options. Well, how about we hold up what God has said as right? This is what's good. This is the standard well, we can't have a standard. It's not fair to people that don't meet it. But this is what God has said. How about just different lifestyles? God created the home. It's, it's the household is the way that, the kind of the fundamental unit of society. That there's those that take care of the house. Typically, that's the woman. The man that goes out and, and works and brings it home and the, and the kids that work to bring it all together. And now, it just, especially people my generation, that kind of don't want anything to do with that. They're kind of like, I don't want to, that's so boring, it's so lame, it's what my parents did and their parents, I want to go and forge something for myself. I said, Well, what's wrong with trying to do what everybody else has done before? If it's a good thing, it's something we should hold to. Even perspectives. Everybody's got a different perspective, but they're not all of equal value. And we need to stop going out of our way to uproot the, the more and more fringe ideas of things because the, the perspective of most people needs to be shut down. We need to recognize that very often, just this isn't, again, this is not a moral issue, but there's, if there's a way that most people are looking at things and most people agree things should be done, that of itself does not make it wrong that we've got to go and try and dig up something else. And I can say this too. I'm going to say this last one delicately. But we need to stop demonizing somebody who is of a majority demographic. And this is something that has been happening a lot lately. And I'm very concerned about this. Because when we go around and we say those people that are, whether you're white or whether you're male or whether you're cisgender, new made-up word that we have, that you've just got to be silent, you've got to be quiet, let other people. All right, there's a room for those lessons. But it's been pushed so hard and so far now, I'm seeing people that ought to know better start to lash out against that and say, you know what, this is, this is what I think, and this is what I say, and I'm not going to let you push me around anymore. I've talked people down off of that before, where it's like, bro, you, you can't act that way. You can't let that turn into hate and turn into rage in your heart. We've got to stop pushing that. We need to start saying, say, let's welcome everybody, rather than saying, you shut up, and then now you get to talk, and you shut up, and you get to talk. That doesn't help anything. The elevation of the fringe and all these different domains to the center is causing so much disruption. And in fact, I think that's what some people want that are pushing these things. Even though these these things that we talk about, they're held by tinier and tinier and tinier slivers of society. But we want to try and hold them up and give them a fair shake and give them as much room at the table as what everybody else has, has done historically and throughout the whole world. A lot of this comes from this, we have this weird detached boredom with life where we're like, let's find out what other other people do. What do people do? And it's like, well, what about you? What life are you living? What do you want to do with yourself? I don't know, but I just like hearing all these different exotic thoughts and ideas. It's a very interesting thing, and it's kind of hard to nail down sometimes. But if we can't learn this lesson that we, we need to look to This this, this, this thought of wholeness, that there is such a thing as standard and it's okay for something to be normal and it's okay for not every strange idea to be given as much airtime as what God has always said. If we don't learn that, there's going to be a nasty overcorrection. That's what happens in societies. When you pull things farther and farther and you stretch the rubber band so far, normal has a way of slapping itself back hard. And that's not where we want to be. It's not where I want to be. God created things to be whole. And it teaches us that we're not to admire and respect or to elevate what is deviant. But Instead, we are to recognize that wholeness was the original plan and wholeness is the goal in the future. And there's a million different other things to add to this. We need to make sure we're keeping things in their proper categories because very often we want to take things that are not moral and attribute morality to them. Sometimes we want to take people and kick them out of the category in which they belong But still, the Lord says, if you're going to approach my tabernacle, you're going to be whole. And the reason for that is because wholeness is the goal. That's what holiness is. And as Christians, very often we're the only ones holding on to God's standard for things. Chapter 22, we're going to go through verse 16, quickly to the end now. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, so that they abstain from the holy things of the people of Israel, which they dedicate to me, so that they do not profane my holy name." I am the Lord. Say to them, if any one of all your offspring throughout your generations approaches the holy things that the people of Israel dedicate to the Lord while he has an uncleanness, that person shall be cut off from my presence. I am the Lord. None of the offspring of Aaron who has a leprous disease or a discharge may eat of the holy things until he is clean. Whoever touches anything that is unclean through contact with the dead or a man who has had an emission of semen and whoever touches a swarming thing by which he may be made unclean or a person from whom he may take uncleanness, whatever his uncleanness may be, the person who touches such a thing shall be unclean until the evening and shall not eat of the holy things unless he has bathed his body in water. When the sun goes down, he shall be clean and afterward he may eat of the holy things because they are of his food. He shall not eat what dies of itself or is torn by beasts, and so make himself unclean by it. I am the Lord. They shall therefore keep my charge, lest they bear sin for it, and die thereby when they profane it. I am the Lord who sanctifies them. A layperson shall not eat of a holy thing. No foreign guest of the priest or hired worker shall eat of a holy thing. But if a priest buys a slave as his property for money, the slave may eat of it, and anyone born in the house may eat of his food. If a priest's daughter marries a layman, she shall not eat of the contribution of the holy things. But if a priest's daughter is widowed or divorced and has no child and returns to her father's house as in her youth, she may eat of her father's food, yet no lay person shall eat of it. And if anyone eats of a holy thing unintentionally, he shall add the fifth of its value to it and give the holy thing to the priest. They shall not profane the holy things of the people of Israel, which they contribute to the Lord, and so cause them to bear iniquity and guilt by eating their holy things. For I am the Lord who sanctifies them. This section is about who may partake of the priest's portions of the offerings, bread, meat, wine, that sort of thing. If the priests, first of all, were unclean, they could not eat of the holy things. So that's pretty basic. This is also probably why the priest and the Levite in the story of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10 didn't want to touch the man that had been beaten because they would have been unclean. And he gives seven ways they could become unclean in this passage. Number one is through leprosy. Number two is through a discharge. We've talked about that. That can be uh, typically through the sexual organ, but also in dysentery and things like that. Number three, through touching a corpse. Number four is through sexual activity. Number five is through a swarming thing. This would be like an insect or a snake or something like that. Number six is if you touch somebody who was unclean, you yourself would become unclean. And number seven is through eating unclean food, whether it's something that had died of itself or had been killed and you found it there. And he says, any priest who did that would die for profaning the meal. Probably not saying here that this was the death penalty as much as this is the Lord bringing judgment upon them. He then explains, all right, so a clean priest can eat these things. Who else? Who counts as the household? So who counts? Number one, the priestly family, somebody living under his roof. Number two is the priestly slaves. And I've said every time we get into this, this was most Often the case of a debt slave, somebody that was trying to pay off a debt and so had sold their labor to this person. They were given all kinds of benefits and all kinds of rights and responsibilities and things, one of which being they were allowed to eat of the holy portions of the priest. And if they had a divorced or a widowed daughter who was then back under their roof. So the same idea as from before. Now, those who could not were laymen, those that were not priests, foreigners, A hired worker, so somebody who's maybe working alongside the bond servant but is going to go home at the end of the day. Number four, a married daughter because she's no longer a part of that family. She's moved on to another family unit. If any of this happened by accident, perhaps this is like David in 1 Samuel 21 who ate of the holy showbread. Remember that story maybe. They would have to offer a guilt offering, which we talked about in chapters 1 through 7, which was an offering where you'd also have to pay a 20% penalty. As in, you've kind of robbed God is the idea, and you're giving back. Because the priests were holy people. They were to be supported by the work they did. And again, it was not for everyone. And all of this will seem very unfair and exclusionary to you, unless you really believe that God was there. And if he was, all of a sudden, this is exactly right. Verse 17 now. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his sons and all the people of Israel and say to them, when anyone of the house of Israel or of the sojourners in Israel presents a burnt offering as his offering for any of their vows or freewill offerings that they offer to the Lord, if it is to be accepted for you, it shall be a male without blemish of the bulls or the sheep or the goats. You shall not offer anything that has a blemish for it will not be acceptable for you. And when anyone offers a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord to fulfill a vow or as a free will offering from the herd or from the flock, to be accepted, it must be perfect. There shall be no blemish in it. Animals blind or disabled or mutilated or having a discharge or an itch or scabs, you shall not offer to the Lord or give them to the Lord as a food offering on the altar. You may present a bull or a lamb that has a part too long or too short for a free will offering, but for a vow offering, it cannot be accepted." Any animal that has its testicles bruised or crushed or torn or cut, you shall not offer to the Lord. You shall not do it within your land. Neither shall you offer as the bread of your God any such animals gotten from a foreigner. Since there is a blemish in them because of their mutilation, they will not be accepted for you. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, When an ox or sheep or goat is born, it shall remain seven days with its mother, and from the eighth day on it shall be acceptable as a food offering to the Lord. But you shall not kill an ox or sheep and her young in one day. And when you sacrifice a sacrifice of thanksgiving to the Lord, you shall sacrifice it so that you may be accepted. It shall be eaten on the same day, you shall leave none of it until morning. I am the Lord. So you shall keep my commandments and do them. I am the Lord. And you shall not profane my holy name, that I may be sanctified among the people of Israel. I am the Lord who sanctifies you, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. So some final rules of sacrifices here. And it's all connected to this idea of wholeness and what will be accepted in God's house. And he specifically makes rules for peace offerings. You remember a peace offering was something you offered of your own free will. And he delineates two different kinds here. One is a free will offering, meaning just because. I brought it to worship the Lord because I wanted to. And then there's also a vow offering where I'm going to make a promise to the Lord, maybe a Nazarite vow. And you would also offer this offering. And there were rules here. Had to be an animal without blemish. It couldn't be blind or disabled or mutilated or have any kind of leprosy. Now, for a free will offering, so a just-because offering, a disproportioned animal was okay, but not for a vow. You can see that a vow is more serious than uh, just coming to worship the Lord because you wanted to. Notice also, castrated animals were not allowed. And he makes the point, even if they were purchased that way from a foreigner, I didn't do it, Lord. Hey, they did it. He goes, yeah, but still, we're, we're only offering whole animals. By the way, verse 24 could imply that there was a blanket ban on animal castration in the land of Israel as a whole, that you couldn't even get your dog fixed, for example, something God didn't want done, but there's difference of opinion on that. He adds at the end, animals could only be sacrificed after at least a week with their mother... And the baby was not to be sacrificed on the same day. Once again, this idea of wholeness, that let the child have a chance to be born. Don't don't take care of the whole family all at once, but allow the generations to continue. Going back to that, that standard idea that God put out there. And also finally, he says, a peace offering was to be consumed on the same day, similar to what we read in chapter 19. And he ends by reminding them that this holiness thing is my idea. I'm the one who sanctifies you. I'm the deliverer. And that's where we end, that holiness is God's idea. Wholeness is God's design. In the book of Malachi, the prophet will rebuke the people. He'll say, when you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? He's saying, you're you're offering stuff in my temple. You wouldn't even offer as taxes, Because your governor would be like, no, 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 I'm not taking your sick goat. I want the whole goat. He said, but you come to my house and you offer what is sick? Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli, despised the Lord. In 1 Samuel 2, they despised, it said his holy offices. And they broke every one of these rules. And God judged them for it. So our reminder at the end here is to be holy as Christ is holy. And to honor what he has come to save. And I know that the application we went to today was a little, maybe a little theoretical and hard to grasp at first. But all we're acknowledging is that God made the world. There is such a thing as right and wrong. And normal is okay. And that there are some things that are, you know, right and wrong issues and some things that are not. But the Lord encourages us to hold up the ideal and the standard rather than feeling the need to constantly tear it down for the sake of somebody else. Jesus showed us great love. Jesus welcomed the sick. He welcomes the destitute. He welcomes the morally broken. But we're all looking forward to the day when he will restore us and we'll be glorified and the imperishable will be put on what is perishable. And this mortality will receive immortality from Christ Jesus.